This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Drug overdoses from opioids surged in the wake of the pandemic, and Project Opioids' Andre Bailey wants more people to pay attention. This week, Bailey's organisation launched a campaign putting PSAs on billboards throughout central Florida, directing people to resources where they can get help. Well, Andre Bailey, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Matthew, thanks for having me on. So tell me about the billboard campaign. What's the goal here? Well, as you know, Matthew, Project Opioid is launching the Everyone campaign that is meant to try to educate folks on this incredible drug crisis driven by synthetic opioids like fentanyl that are killing historic amounts of people. You know, we all know, Matthew, about big pharma and the overprescribing of opioids that happened for a long, long time and the lawsuits related to it. We all know that story. But the new story of overdose deaths really since the pandemic began is the story of fentanyl, this really new drug that was not even in America until about six years ago, that is killing upwards of 90% of the people dying. The Everyone campaign is on billboards, social media. Uh, it's, it's everywhere we can put it, telling people, be careful of drugs in a way that's different than it's ever been before. And if you're struggling, go to this website, get help, because there is help available. Don't die in isolation right now. Just on that fentanyl note, I mean, it's been around as an anesthetic for longer than six years, though, hasn't it? You're just talking about the, the advent of it as a illegal street drug. Matthew, what you just said is really important because fentanyl was created in 1960 by Janssen Pharmaceutica. Like it, it was a drug, an opioid created in a laboratory, a professional laboratory used for surgeries and, and still is to this day. That is not what is killing people. I almost feel like that's a real important part of this conversation. Fentanyl is in hospitals used for surgery, but the fentanyl that's killing young people and vulnerable people is a chemical weaponized concoction that's coming from overseas, being produced in Mexico and smuggled into our country. Um, And the reason that's important is because if you were to be if you were to abuse fentanyl that you got from a hospital that was made from a pharmaceutical company, at least you kind of know what you're taking, right? Um, so this fentanyl that we're seeing uh, on our streets today, that is a new version of fentanyl that again was never on our streets really until 2014, 2015, in the form that it's in now. That is what's killing. Uh, again, 90, 95%. When we did our recent uh, data survey, uh, we could find very few occasions of fentanyl, the the hospital-grade version, killing anyone. So the billboard campaign, and back to that, I mean, obviously, if you you have a, a personal connection to a story, like you know somebody who has gone through like an experience with overdose or addiction, then that's gonna, that's gonna resonate, right? But like, who are you hoping to reach with the with the billboards? Because that seems like a, a pretty high level way to, to do it. You know, when you do advocacy, Matthew, on, on a topic like this, sometimes advocacy can be more effective than other times. We feel like this is where advocacy is top of the list important because, Matthew, so many people in Central Florida are physically dependent to opioids. We, we throw around that word addicted a lot and, and people, there's a stigma surrounding that word. So throw that word out. Let's think about how many people physically wake up every day and have to take opioids or they become sick because their body's dependent. Our recent survey 
uh, counts that number at over 70,000 Central Floridians, more than the attendance at the University of Central Florida are physically dependent on opioids, in legal opioids, illegal, illicit opioids. So we want those who are struggling or family members tied to those 70,000 individuals to know that get help right now. Uh, if, you are, if you are struggling with opioids, get help. Because what happens, Matthew, is someone's taking maybe a prescription opioid. They lose their prescription. Their doctor kind of figures out that they're abusing these drugs. They're going to move to the streets. They're going to buy dangerous, dangerous versions of those opioids that will at some point cause them to overdose and kill them. We want to show them that there's options available, available medications they can take that can curb their withdrawals and Narcan. Narcan is this drug a lot of people are just learning about. It will bring and save them or a loved one from an overdose. We make that Narcan available for free at uh, the Everyone Campaign website. Are you still working also to get Narcan or more Narcan in the, in the hands of first responders? Yeah, that's a big part. That's not First responders get Narcan from us in different ways. We've got new legislation we're running as we speak, House Bill 93, looking at expanding Narcan in Florida and in Central Florida. But hey, Narcan, Matthew, is saving more lives really than anything else I can think of right now uh, in Central Florida and in our state and beyond. We need to make sure every law enforcement officer, first responder has Narcan. But Matthew, we also need to make sure that Narcan is really available to everyday people like like yourself, like someone running a restaurant or a business. Narcan is not dangerous if it got in the hands of someone, a child, and, and they, they ingested it. It has no impact on the human body. But for someone who's overdosing, it will stop their overdose and save their life. That's why the Everyone campaign is really looking to help expand Narcan. There's a lot available. People just don't know where to get it. So back to the root cause of this, and you referenced, you know, drugs being overprescribed or, or misprescribed. What kind of work is Project Opioid doing on that front to try and turn that around? Or is that something that's happening already? Well, here's what's wild, Matthew, is, you know, three, four years ago, I would have gotten on this radio show and said the most important thing we need to do is limit prescriptions that doctors are writing, that hospitals are giving out when people have surgeries. And that would have been the truth. But Matthew, this is shocking. In the last three years, prescriptions for opioids in Central Florida and around America are down almost 80%. And that's just happened in the last three years. Doctors, pharmacies, other healthcare providers have figured out if, if I overprescribe, I'm going to end up going to court and getting sued and, and, and there's going to be big trouble. So although that's great, we applaud the fact that prescriptions are finally way, way down. Matthew, what about all those folks that I just told you about? 70,000 of them just in Central Florida alone as a recent uh, data survey estimated. What happens to those folks now? We gave them all these drugs. These are powerful drugs. It's not like asking someone to not have Krispy Kreme donuts on their drive home from work. When you have been given these opioids and your body is dependent on them, we have to think about what are the alternatives for people when they get cut off. Project Opioid is really pushing Matthew for policy and funding around what's called medication-assisted treatment. These are FDA-approved medications 
that will act as a bridge for someone who is physically dependent on opioids. Uh, not to get boring on your radio show, but there's a drug called buprenorphine that is a, a version of an opioid that doesn't get you high. It really can't be abused in the way that a lot of drugs can be abused that will keep you from overdosing if you take this drug. And it will allow those cravings to be under control in a way that, again, helps you get from physical dependency to, to where you're back on track. These are all things as a society, all these things we need to talk about, Matthew, because it's real easy just to be like, oh, people just need to suck it up and stop using drugs or face the consequences of their actions. If you had a loved one struggling with drugs and they're, they've become dependent on those drugs, you'd have a different story, you know? Like you'd see how, how people need grace when they're struggling with opioids. I want to just go back to that stat you mentioned, though. I'm, I'm looking at some of the CDC data here, and according to their numbers, the total prescriptions of opioids peaked in 2012. That was 255 million prescriptions, which is a pretty high rate, 81.3 prescriptions per 100 people. Um, and it's it's fallen quite a bit since then. But, I mean, you're you're talking about pretty a pretty steep decline. That seems to me to suggest that Five years from now, the conversation might be quite different, or do you still think there is a lot of urgency in, in getting the message out and trying to turn things around, as in how people get addicted in the first place and, and then the, the treatments available once once they are in that cycle? Matthew, in five years, the conversation, I believe, many experts believe, is going to be very different. Here's how it's going to be different. Less people are going to start on the path of addiction dependency on opioids from their doctor, less of them are going to start there. But more and more drug dealers have figured out how to put this synthetic opioid fentanyl into every other drug on the streets. So drug dealers have figured out that fentanyl is cheap to produce. It's incredibly dangerous, but their customers will still take it. And um, that's the future of the drug crisis in America. Matthew, another thing you and I were mentioning before we went on air is this pandemic, hopefully we're going to see the last phase of it as we know it. But you're going to see, I believe, and and many experts believe, this wave of post-pandemic mental health issues. All that to say, Matthew, five years from now, I wish I could say I believe the drug crisis would be better because of the cutting of prescription opioids. I think the stats tell a different story, that more Americans than ever post-pandemic are physically feeling terrible, mentally feeling exhausted, and are turning to these dangerous drugs in record numbers and these drugs are more deadly than ever. So we got to do more than ever to get people information on how they can get help. The Everyone campaign uh, seeks in Central Florida to tell people, don't take these drugs if you don't know what you're taking. It could kill you, fentanyl. And if you are struggling, get Narcan, get medications that can help you, and don't struggle alone. Well, Andre Bailey is the founder of Project Opioid. Andre, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Matthew, as always. Up next, if an election recount like Bush v. Gore went before the Florida Supreme Court today, would the public accept the result? A conversation with outgoing communications director Craig Waters after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Craig Waters retires from his role as communications director for the Florida Supreme Court next month. Waters helped steer the court into the internet age and was there as the world watched the court debate the Bush v. Gore recount in 2000.
Waters spent 35 years working at the Supreme Court, first as a staff attorney and was instrumental in putting public court records online and organising live streams of oral arguments at the court. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here. Let's start with 2000 and the presidential election vote recount. Uh, Litigation was in the hands of the Supreme Court for more than a month. Um, What was your role during that time? Well, it was very interesting. Um, The Bush v. Gore cases came at a sort of a a, a transition point in in terms of technology. And um, my role was to make sure that the, the, the public and the press were properly informed about what was happening at the Florida Supreme Court. Uh, after all, these were cases that were going to affect the presidency of the United States, and there was worldwide interest. It was very fortuitous, I think, that um, this happened at the Florida Supreme Court, because we already had been uh, experimenting in a big way with um, using online resources to inform the public about what was happening in our branch of government. In 1994, we had started our first website. We were one of the first courts in the world to actually have an official public website. Uh, And then in 1997, we began live streaming arguments uh, on the web, which was quite new at the time. Uh, In fact, when I first started the project, we really thought we were only going to be able to do audio, not video as well. But the technology changed while we were actually in the process of implementing the project so that we were able to do uh, both video and audio. Mm -hmm. We started those broadcasts in the fall of 1997. So speed forward to the year 2000, and we already had these resources in place. That was very, very unusual at that time for any court in the world. Um, So it was very, very fortuitous that the Florida Supreme Court happened to be the place where the Bush v. Gore cases were mostly litigated. And uh, of course, what we were able to do uh, because of the online resources we had was uh, we were able to place all of the filings, orders, and public documents online for anyone to be able to download and read on their own, print on their own printers if they wanted to, anywhere on earth. That was still novel at the time. Courts were not uh, really using uh, the web at that particular point in time to distribute public records. It was um, such a a break from what courts traditionally had done, where people would come to the courthouse to obtain anything they might need from the court. Mm -hmm. And of course, having the broadcast online and a live stream uh, format live and unedited, from start to finish, was incredibly unusual in the world. The U.S. Supreme Court had nothing similar. Uh, Very few courts elsewhere in the United States had anything similar. There were really no major courts in the world that had something similar. Uh, So this was sort of an an introduction to the world of how courts could use uh, online resources, the World Wide Web, to make sure the public was aware of what was going on in their institutions of government. Mm-hmm. So people were able not only to download and read all of the documents, they were also able to watch the oral arguments live from start to finish and draw their own conclusions, and they could do that anywhere on earth. That was very unusual at the time, and it was uh, very eye-opening to a lot of uh, people. It, it really marked the point when courts began to realize um, that they were going to have to move into the online world. In fact, it put me on the speaking circuit for four years after that, going around helping to train courts to do just that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think today we are so accustomed to having everything online that we forget what it was like back then. So it sounds like the experience that you had and the the fact that there was so much scrutiny on what the Florida Supreme Court was doing, it sounds like that that might have revolutionized uh, things for other court systems too, in a way. Is that is that your take on it? It really did. And, you know, you have to understand the history out of which that whole thing came. 
The O.J. Simpson trial was still fresh on everybody's minds in, in 2000, at least in the court world where I live. You know, the O.J. Simpson trial was widely seen as a colossal failure of access. You know, and of course, you know, there were a lot of criticisms about how that was conducted and you know, whether uh, the access was properly managed. Mm-hmm. But I think what happened here in Florida with, with Bush v. Gore and everything that has come since then is that we have shown that access can work when it is properly managed. The one big takeaway I had about Bush v. Gore and dealing with the press and the public was that everyone marveled at the ability to, to watch what was going on in an unedited format and draw their own conclusions. And there was no grandstanding going on. You know, there was no politicking going on as people watched these oral arguments. I had several people, um, you know, major commentators come to me and, and say how impressed they were watching the oral arguments at the Florida Supreme Court in the Bush v. Gore cases, because they saw what were clearly legal arguments and not political arguments. And I think that that fact alone helped dispel a lot of misgivings people might have had uh, about uh, a, a court here in Tallahassee, Florida, resolving a case that could affect the presidency of the United States. It made people feel like it was, in fact, a legal process and not simply political maneuvering. I don't know if you've run this thought experiment, Craig, but if the same situation were to happen now, some 20 years later, do you think people would have the same level of reassurance? Because it does feel like we're in a different era. And to your point about people, you know, interpreting what they see, however they see fit, I feel like the the kind of range of opinions about what is accepted fact or not has maybe shifted somewhat. Well, it probably was good that Bush v. Gore happened when it did in in a political climate that was different than the one we have today. Mm -hmm. I think if there had been a 20-year delay in courts moving into the internet as we uh, did in the 1990s and uh, up to 2000, I think if if it had been delayed that period of time, we would see a very different outcome today because the level of distrust has increased uh, since that time. And, um, uh, you know, of course, I would have still made every effort to make the process work the way it did back in the year 2000, you know, but the political forces that exist out in the world might have made that more difficult for courts. I wanted to wind back in time a little bit before 2000 and and talk about how you got into the role you're in now. I mean, you were a reporter, a journalist before you went to law school and became a staff attorney. I want to know what made you want to go into law after working as a journalist for a while. Well, I I did two major things as a journalist. I, I, I covered state government and the legislature here in Tallahassee. But I also covered courts. I covered courts in Pensacola when I I first started out at the newspaper there. And then I covered courts again when I was in Tallahassee, when I was not covering the legislature. I I, I was pulled onto court issues. And I developed a a really strong interest in the law at the time, seeing what was going on. I I think I I kind of figured out that I have a mind that works in flowcharts, which lends itself very well to to legal uh, analysis and legal thought. And, you know, I was dealing with a lot of prominent judges and lawyers who I, I had the opportunity to bounce ideas off of and talk to them about um, you know, the possibilities. I was still in my, my 20s at the time, and um, you know, several of them encouraged me to, to think about law school. And so with that encouragement, I, I took the, um, the law school entrance exam, did well enough to get in to the schools I, I, I was interested in, and then went away to uh, Gainesville to the University of Florida you know, for the period of 1984 to 1986. And so that's basically how that happened. You know, when I got to law school, of course, you know, that the mid-1980s, the World Wide Web did not exist in the form it does today. There was a web version, but it was, it was done on green screens, and you had to know computer code in order to make it work. 
I dabbled a little bit in that, but it, it, it was difficult to use. It certainly wasn't the kind of, of thing lay people could use. But um, I had begun using computers as a journalist. Journalism computerized before a lot of other industries did. And so I had had to learn it there. And I continued that experience in law school. Uh, I was one of, of two people in my entire law school class who had a personal computer. And back then you had to, to really maintain and program it yourself. There was no one to come in and help you. And uh, so I, I had begun to, to learn more and more about coding while I was in law school. I originally wanted to go into media law. I had identified a, a firm in Miami, uh, Parker Thompson's old law firm, as a matter of fact, that uh, they were interested in me and I was interested in them. But while I was in that process, um, Justice Rosemary Barquette, who was the first woman on the Florida Supreme Court, uh, asked me to come work for her. And it was a two-year commitment. And I thought, well, I can afford two years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I accepted that and came to work for her. And then one thing led to another, and, the, and uh, I ended up uh, uh, you know, being pulled into what became the, the communications director position at the Florida Supreme Court, partly because of my background in the press and partly because of my experience with computers. Aside from kind of helping the court move into the, the era of online streaming and, and making things available to people on the internet, you also helped introduce social media as a tool for disseminating court information, which is like another layer of, I guess, the the revolution, the way information has gotten out there. How do you think social media has changed the way the court operates, if at all? Well, social media is still somewhat controversial in the court systems around the nation. When I go to national meetings, most of the of the court personnel that I meet there are not using social media. Their, their courts will not let them use social media. There's a substantial minority of, of, of courts that are allowing it now. But, you know, again, you know, Florida, because of our culture of openness, got into social media very early. I first began to notice social media when it started to emerge around 2006. And by 2009, I decided it was a solid enough phenomenon and had a clear future the way I saw it at that time. I went to the justices of the Florida Supreme Court and got their permission to begin experimenting with social media. At first, they would only let me use Twitter. There were a lot of factors that went in and into that. Uh, there was uh, a lot of dismay about the way Facebook worked and still is just to some degree around the nation. But Twitter seemed to be something that the, the justices could wrap their minds around and could understand. And it seemed to fit in very well with this tradition of openness that Florida had developed. And I, certainly, you know, the experience I've had with Twitter is we have had zero problems with our Twitter account. Mm -hmm. We have about 21,000 people that follow us on Twitter, about the same number on Facebook now. But we began using Twitter initially as a way of getting out breaking news. The news media has embraced uh, Twitter in a big way as well. Uh, an awful lot of reporters comb Twitter regularly for leads on news stories. And so we began in 2009 putting information out on Twitter about the breaking news events that were happening at the court. Over time, we've expanded the content that we put out to, to include other things as well. But when we first started in 2009, I really was using it mainly as a way of uh, informing the public about filings in high-profile cases, press releases, orders that were issued by my court, other breaking news that was important. And we found it to be an excellent way of getting out information and increasing the level of transparency we already had developed by having uh, documents on our website and by streaming our oral arguments for the public to watch. Mm -hmm. So social media seemed like a natural outgrowth of that. 
you alluded to this before, but I wanted to come back to this. I mean, a lot of the work you've been doing over the course of your career with the Supreme Court of Florida has been around making information more accessible to people and promoting transparency of the court. And yet we're now in an age where trust in the media has been eroded and alternative facts abound. What do you think that means for the work of the Supreme Court and for the journalists who cover the courts? Well, I certainly have noticed the changes in the news media. What has happened, of course, is is uh, as the revenues have decreased, the staffing levels have decreased in news organizations. We have far fewer people covering state government than we used to have. And those that are still covering state government are expected to do a lot more than just cover the courts. Mm-hmm. So they're juggling a lot of balls in the air all the time. And what I have found is that social media has become very important as a way of us reaching out to the public in those cases where, where uh, the media today simply cannot cover what is happening uh, in the state court system. So we have used social media as a way of filling in the gap caused by the retreat of the traditional news media because of their losses of revenue over the last uh, couple of decades. And it really has been, I think, very important for any branch of government to be able to provide this kind of access to the public where they are unable to get it from traditional media like they used to. That seems to put the onus on public information officers, though, right? I mean, I'm sure not every public information officer is necessarily as, you know, thinking ahead as as you may have been in your career and, and sort of really wanting to necessarily do everything in their power to get the information out. Like, this isn't necessarily about the court system, but, you know, in any agency, there are some folks who may just be reactive rather than proactive in getting information out there. Well, yeah, and I have found that being reactive rather than proactive puts you in a bad place a lot of times. It's much better to be proactive than simply reactive. And your comment about public information officers, yes, they have become more important really since since Bush v. Gore. And in fact, we have, as a result of the changes that have happened, we uh, have developed and I founded an organization that is the Professional Association of Court Public Information Officers here in Florida. We have taken an increasing role in trying to fill in the gap Mm-hmm. you know, caused by the retreat of the, of the traditional media. And, uh, you know, this organization, which is called FCPIO, the Florida Court Public Information Officers, we are, you know, 501c3, federally recognized nonprofit. We meet regularly. You know, we, we establish standards for our profession. We have educational opportunities. We help train the newbies who come in uh, and are just learning the, the tricks of, of public information and outreach. This has been one of the ways courts have reacted to what has happened with the news industry. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly seen over the time I've been involved in this, the PIOs have become increasingly important as a way of making sure the public understands what happens in the court system. One of my chief justices phrased it this way. He said that justice must be seen. It's not enough simply that justice is done. People actually must see justice when it is happening. And so that's one of the roles that the PIOs play. We make sure that people do not view the courts as something clouded in mystery, because it's not good for the public to perceive the courts that way. We want the public to understand what is happening with our courts, how they function, and the important role they play in achieving justice in our society. Well, Craig Waters will step down as the Director of the Office of Public Information for the Florida Supreme Court in February. Craig, thanks so much for speaking with me. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Waters will be succeeded by Paul Fleming, currently Director of Communication for the Office of the State Courts Administrator. Still to come, what if instead of the Silver Surfer there was a comic book character named the Electric Slider? He's one of a cast of characters reimagined through the lens of Afrofuturism, social justice and hip-hop. We'll have more on that after the break.
This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. If you think about the concept of Afrofuturism in comic books, you might think of Black Panther, the Marvel superhero depicted in the blockbuster 2018 movie. Julian Chambliss says you'd be right, but there's more to it than that. Chambliss, a professor of English at Michigan State University, curated a new exhibition at the Hurston Museum in Eatonville as part of Zora Festival. Afrofuturism in the Visual Realm is a series of works by the Black Kirby Art Collaborative, which reimagines comic book superheroes. I spoke to Chambliss and Central Florida artist Trent Semengo, who helped put the exhibition together about Black Kirby and Afrofuturism. Julian, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Also joined by humanities professor, artist, and uh, also a member of the Zora Festival Academic Committee, Trent Tomingo. Trent, thank you as well. Thank you, Matthew. Well, Trent, you hung this exhibition, so just for our listeners' sake, tell us what visitors to the gallery can expect. What are they going to see when they walk in the doors? What they're going to see is an array of graphic pieces by John Jennings and Stacey Robinson, uh, known as Black Kirby. Not only are they going to see these wonderfully beautiful graphic images, but they're going to see a lot of references to uh, Black history, hip-hop, futuristic ideas, uh, fantasy, uh, in addition to um, uh, hip-hop culture. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a wider range of ideas that emanate from the walls. uh, And you really can't take it all in quickly. So it's a small, intimate space, but they should prepare to be there for a while. So is the Black Kirby collaboration, uh, has that that been around for some time? Yes, Black Kirby is is actually their 10th anniversary year. And that was, that's another one of the, um, great things about the opportunity to present this work here. Uh, John Jennings and Stacey Robinson are both professors and artists. John Jennings at the University of California, Riverside. Stacey Robinson's at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. This collaboration is inspired by um, their Afrofuturist and, you know, sort of academic and artistic work. The um, artists and creators have created a number of graphic novels. John Jane, of course, is uh, along with Clavery, Damon Duffy, is very well known for his New York Times bestselling adaptation of Octavia Butler's The Kindred and The Parable of the Sower. Stacey Robinson, and one with uh, Tony Medina, is the art behind um, I Am Afonso Jones, often referred to as the Black Lives Matter graphic novel. Um, it's also other work like uh, Prison Industrial Complex. And so, you know, these are these are artists that are really deeply influenced by Afrofuturism, deeply influenced by um, their sort of consideration of the origins of uh, American visual culture and really pursuing an ideology that's informed by something they refer to as critical race design theory. So all of this comes through in the context of the work that you're seeing on the walls. Trent, do you have to be a comic book fan or do you have to like know something of, of hip hop culture to, to kind of get what's going on here or can, can you just kind of come and appreciate it as a casual viewer? Yeah. Well, the good thing about the show, Matthew, is that uh, it's just visually stunning just without knowing anything about hip hop comics or black history or black culture. You know, if you just take it in for the purely visual aspect 
there's a lot of, of meat there for the eye. So I would say, yes, you can enjoy it just for that. Uh, however, if you come in with a little bit of knowledge of either of those areas, even, you know, maybe not knowing a lot about one or two, but if you come in with a little bit of knowledge, not only will you be able to see more connections, but it will help you appreciate the visuals a lot more because everything is synergistic in the, in the show. You know, and I'll say this, the idea of Afrofuturism, like most people you know, that I know, is very new uh, to us. These ideas have been around for quite some time. Uh, but I've just been introduced to them since I've been knowing uh, Julian. And uh, the idea of comics and graphic novels, I'm not well versed in that. However, because of what I teach at Seminole State, which one of my courses is African-American humanities, you know, there's a lot of references to Black history and Black culture that I know very intimately. So going into to a show like that, someone who had very little knowledge of comic book history or comic book characters. But I have seen most of the superhero movies, so that helps, even though they're quite different than the comic book. Uh, my going in with little uh, knowledge of comics, but a great deal of knowledge of Black culture and Black history, including hip-hop, that fed me so much to where it made me want to look up the things that I did not know. And so that's the beauty of the show. You can enjoy it purely for the visual aspect of it, but the more you know, the more the show gives to you and the more insight uh, that you have. Julian, I think you'd sort of be coming at this from a slightly different angle, right? Because you're steeped in comic book culture, right? This is something that you know this medium inside and out. So how does the exhibition look to you? Part of the reason I went with this as the show in the museum was because it was comic books and because since about 2018 if you say Afrofuturism to a lot of people they think Black Panther mm-hmm. and that's perfectly reasonable Black Panther is a Marvel Cinematic Universe film is a phenomenon arguably a global phenomenon and Black Panther the, the comic book character created by Jack Kirby is often in scholarly circles, I mean, I've written about this, lots of people written about this as an Afrofuturist character, right? And so my approach to the kind of work of curating the festival, and right now the festival is engaged in a cycle that is exploring the meaning of Afrofuturism. So since 2020, every, every year, there's been a thematic engagement Afrofuturism. The first year, 2020, was what is Afrofuturism? It's always like a question and I'm approaching um, sort of designing sort of the academic experiences and the, and the museum experiences as an answer. And so the first year, um, when you say, what is Afrofuturism? A lot of people just assume, well, it's science fiction novels. And I'm like, yes, but it's more than that. It's this long tradition of black speculative fiction. So the exhibition in the museum was an exploration of like these black authors that wrote science fiction way before the 1970s. And so with vision, you're always trying to think about this in the context of like, it must, it has to be accessible for a broad audience, but also there's going to be some complexity there where people have to sort of like stretch 
And so it's good to start with something like comic books because there is a cultural narrative about comic books that, you know, 10 years ago just did not exist. But now you can say Jack Kirby and people are like, oh yeah, I know who Jack Kirby is. And you can say, you know, Silver Surfer or the Fantastic Four, the Avenger or the X-Men. And there's a reference point that is very clear for people. And even though you don't, you're not seeing exactly those characters, the fact that they're being remixed through this Afrofuturist lens in the show, it immediately becomes a way where you don't have to know anything, but you know enough to be drawn in and, and go through a journey. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the Silver Surfer because I'm looking at the um, the catalog here and one of the pieces is called the Electric Slider, which I think is kind of like a, a reference to the Silver Surfer. Is that right? Right, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a reference to the Silver Surfer, but it's not the Silver Surfer, right? Like none of them are actually the characters. They're they're really the the artists thinking about, you know, if if they were Jack Kirby, and they were creating these characters in the context of trying to think about Black experience, Black culture, Black history, Black. What would they? What would they? What would they do? Well, they would. They would. They wouldn't do the Silver Surfer. They do the Electric Slider, right? Right, because because obviously they're referencing hip hop dance, you know. So you know, it's not. It's not what. It's not what you think it is, but you know what that is. And so now you're automatically. You lean in. You go like, "Oh, is is this okay? What what is this? What is happening here?" And 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 then it becomes a whole question of you thinking through um, the implications of seeing this image and and the freedom. Like you know, one of the things when you think about the the original um, Silver Surfer is that you know that character tapped into a kind of at the time a kind of 1960s sort of existential reflection on cosmic things. And so what does it mean to rethink that through a black lens, right? Like what is the sort of existential concern? What are what are the what are the the questions of identity, cosmos that that, that character might 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 trigger you to, to contemplate. If you're just joining me, we're talking about the Black Kirby exhibit at the Hurston. It's part of the Zora Festival this year. Speaking with Dr. Julian Chambliss and Trent Domingo. And Trent, I wonder, you know, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that comics weren't something you'd necessarily kind of come to from a from a standpoint of having read them a lot. Um, but do you have some favorites? Are there some standouts for you from a visual point of view or, or just the, the thematics that are going on? One of the pieces that uh, stands out to me in the show, and the funny thing about it is there are some things in it that's still intriguing me that... I haven't yet thought through. Uh, so the, the pieces continue to give, even though I've seen it, you know, several times. And when I go back there again, uh, I have to look at it again, just to, to, after I've done a little bit more research, just to get more connections. And that piece is Major Sankofa, you know, who, you know, is in, you know, using sort of the, idea of Captain America as the jumping off point or the point of reference. But, I mean, you get it with the visuals that that is the reference. But there's so much in that piece from what he's wearing to the symbol that is on his chest, which is 
and a dinker symbol called Sankofa, you know, and that whole idea of Sankofa, you know, meaning to go back and, and, and get something that you've left or that you've dropped. You know, I was very familiar with the Sankofa symbol and the Sankofa concept, again, because of some of the things that I teach in my courses. But to see this on a character that is sort of, uh, you know, reminiscent of a Captain America, you know, you know, the story, uh, then, you know, he is from the past, you know, and, and, and so what good does he bring to the current because he's from the past? And that's the whole nostalgic idea of, you know, purity in days gone by. Well, when you apply that idea to Major Sankofa, and when you see the sort of superhero stance that he's in, it's a very engaging piece and making me think about the importance of learning these concepts that come from these different African cultures. You know, um, the, the, the ideas have a way of transforming not only how you think of the information itself, but how you think about yourself and your place in it. Uh, at least it does for me. And, and when, it, when, when you think in that particular way, uh, then you start to ask yourself about the character that is there, the need for that character. Why is there a need for Major Sankofa? Why is there a need to look back? And, you know, that has been a question that Black people have been asking since the advent of, of slavery. And especially in the ideas of Henry Highland Garnett, Marcus Garvey, Elaine Locke, you know, even when you get to the people in the, you know, the Black Arts Movement people in the 70s. So, so the major Sankofa piece has so many implications in terms of how we understand these ideas. And again, there are some images and ideas in there that I still have to uh, sort of think through but that's the beauty of the show. And for me, that piece in particular, because it's something that I can always go back to and get even more information. That's interesting, Julian, thinking about this whole concept then of Afrofuturism. I mean, how, how important is the past referencing some of those traditions that, that Trent's referring to there? Like how, how crucial is that to this, the notion of Afrofuturism, like reaching back and kind of figuring out how that fits into contemporary culture and and making a future as well you know engaging with the past contemplating the present creating a new future this is crucial to afrofuturism as a as a movement right at some level afrofuturism is a philosophy of recovery and this of course makes sense if you think about diasporic groups that are dislocated from their places of origin not just simply african-americans but many diasporas this idea of engagement with the the origin point and the history that those, that's lost is 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 a natural occurrence. And Afrofuturism, the idea that the past, the present, and the future are in constant dialogue, are very important. And so, the idea that your contemporary moment, the moment you're living in right now, is a direct and ongoing dialogue with the past is inescapable for for people of color and, and marginalized groups and reconciling that reality to create a better future is an important part 
of why, you know, Afrofuturism is Afrofuturism. When you're looking at it in the context of, of the show, a lot of my choices here were to create a multi-generational narrative, which is a little bit more subtle, but like like Trent said, like, you know, he could look at something like Major Sankofa and be like, oh, I know this term. And, and that is a term that a lot of African-Americans of a certain age in particular will instantly know. Um, but there are other imagery in the show, like Gil Scott Free and, and Jill Scott Free. Gil Scott and Jill Scott, those two figures are, are going to play differently. And putting them together was a deliberate act, right? Like I, I put them together in a deliberate act. The choice was, you know, Gil Scott Free is, of course, referencing Mr. Miracle, uh, DC escape artist. And, and Jill Scott Free is referencing Big Barda, who is his wife, who is a, a, one of the Furies from Apocalypse. Um, but they're both interested in freedom. And so the idea that you have these two sort of pop culture references that are from very different generations, but also very much associated with like a certain kind of freedom. You know, Gil Scott-Free, an incredibly important spoken word artist, who is also referenced in the trailer for Black Panther. So if you remember the first trailer when when, when you hear the revolution will be told, right? like that's Gil Scott, right? Like that's one of his really famous things. So there's a lot going on in the show that is history, that is past, but also contemporary, but also you know, when we think about what is a future that most marginalized people, people of color are constantly engaged with, like African-Americans are constantly engaged with this question of freedom and what needs to be done in terms of like promoting it. Trent, one thing that occurs to me, and I was thinking about this as you were talking about coming back to some of these works and, you know, they, they inspire further dialogue with yourself and, and make you reflect every time you come back to them. But just from a practical point of view, I'm looking at some of these panels and wondering have the artists created a whole storyline? Is there a comic to go with this? Or is this kind of like an idea and then it's up to you sort of imagine? Because I'm, I'm looking at, for example, you know, the, this image of the electric slider. I would love to read a full comic book of the electric slider, but does that exist? No. Um, I know you asked Trent this question, but the answer is no. They're covers. Both of these people, both John and Stacey have written graphic novels and they have stories but they these are these are covers these are imaginary possible stories like each one of them is a doorway into a different story world right and you can imagine what this character might be doing but um again every one of them is is just a one-off right but see that's the beauty of it that right there is the beauty of it because the person makes up their own story you know we each have a different relationship to the ideas in the works. So, you know, my looking at uh, something, you know, like, let's go back to the Major Sankofa or uh, the uh, Magneto X, you know, I'm going to have a different relationship with that idea. And, and the fact that they, that there's no backstory, that is what, what allows the mind to go wherever you want it to go. And there is enough in the images that, and enough references in the images that, you know, your mind can go to different places where you didn't think about those things before you saw those connections. And, and so 
for me, that's the beauty of not having a backstory. Again, I come at this without uh, having a comic book background. And those pieces continue to feed the mind simply because they are so open-ended. I will say this, though. Anybody going to see the show should not take anything for granted that's in any of the pieces. Every single word, every single phrase, even if you think it's just random, look it up. Look it up on your phone while you're standing in front of a piece and the references will blow you away. Uh, and I do like the fact that the show ends or the last few pieces, if you you know go from left to right in the show, uh, are part of the space that Julian called uh, a spooky world, you know? And anybody that knows anything about DJ Spooky uh, will attest to the idea that, you know, the ideas are extremely open and extremely broad to where you insert yourself into, you know, the narrative in any particular way that you need to. And I think that is what is transformative, which is a word I have keep kept hearing throughout this process. That's what is transformative. Trent, what's the big takeaway for you about this exhibit? Uh, the big takeaway is, for me, look at things with a different lens. Knowing the things that I know, looking at them through the lens of Afrofuturism just gives me a whole new possibility of how to teach this information, how to experience the information myself. So for me, it would, it would, it would be that. And Julian, what's your takeaway from this? This show is a great opportunity for people who are interested in the transformative potential Afrofuturism to catch a glimpse of the ways that the art can inspire a set of conversations and help you rethink and, and think of, rethink some things and think anew about other things. And it's great to have um, a show like this up right now um, to inspire people to learn a little bit more. Well, uh, Dr. Julian Chambliss, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. And Trent Domingo, thank you as well. Appreciate you. Thank you, Matthew. And Afrofuturism in the visual realm will be on display at the Hurston for a year. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.